Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. One, two, three. Welcome to The Rap Report with your host, Andrew Rappaport, where we provide biblical interpretation and application. This is a ministry of striving for eternity and the Christian podcast community. For more content or to request a speaker for your church, go to strivingforeternity.org. Okay, well, welcome to another Rap Report. I'm your host, Andrew Rappaport, and I am joined by the man of the Bud Brief, well, we're trying to get him to do a bud brief, but it hasn't been working so far. But Alheim, how are you in there in sunny Florida? Well, not you know it's overcast today, but I think it's like eighty. So uh, we're pulling out the fleece in anticipation of a very cool Thanksgiving. Uh, Wait, you're not allowed to celebrate Thanksgiving. You you know you can't do that. I guess you could do it if it's oh. over Zoom. Yeah, you just can't. You got to get that turkey. You know, I don't know if you've seen all the memes. This is so funny. I see these memes of there was one where there was like a car with like 20 police cars behind them. And and the the meme is, I just came back from the grocery store buying a turkey for 20 people. (laughs) That's that's enough for 15 to 20 people. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Well, by the time this broadcast will, you know, have already passed uh, Thanksgiving. So, yeah, uh, this is true. This we can is true. find out later whether or not there were any uh, ill effects from the nefarious oversight <laughs> of our of our uh, leaders. I, I wonder if we'll know who's president by then. I mean, no, you you won't. Oh, okay, we, we, no. we still don't know who who's president. Okay, no, no it's not not going to happen. We yeah. may never know. This <laughs> <side of> glory. <laughs> well, one thing that. Um, I think that you sent me that we could talk about before we get in. Today's topic, what we want to do is is really equip believers in an area that many don't study but need to. It's an area called textual criticism. And this is something where so many Christians think, hey, this goes over my head. We're going to break it down so it's easy to understand, and I'm going to give you the reason why this is so important. This is probably the number one issue that people that do apologetics have to deal with. Can you trust your Bible? Has the Bible been edited? Has it been changed? It's been corrupted. It has contradictions. You know, all these type of arguments of the trustworthiness of the Scriptures. Can you rely on the Bible that you hold in your hand and say, thus says the Lord? That's what we're going to cover today. But before we do, Bud, you sent me something that just, it, it kind of cracked me up. And so we'll start with this. You sent me an article from the the Sun, which is a UK paper. Uh, it seems that Kenneth Copeland, it's the U.S. edition too, by the way, uh, the, is right. It's the U.S. Yeah. Sun. So this is uh, this is a uh, an article about Kenneth Copeland, and he's been hacked by Russian hackers. Now, for anyone that doesn't know who Kenneth Copeland is, well, good for you. Yes, yes, <laughs> you are blessed. Uh, Kenneth Copeland is one of only two people that Justin Peters actually believes is demon-possessed. Kenneth Copeland and Todd Bentley are the two that he he actually believes are demon-possessed. And when you watch Copeland, I mean, he's just, he 
he goes from normal to insane in a split second and back to normal. It's he's it's weird. Mm. It just when you watch him, it does look like man. If someone's demon possessed, that's what it would look like. Yeah. And the interesting thing about this Russian hack. So they got in and stole you know a 1.2 terabytes of data about his business and threatened to put stuff out there. Uh, of course, if he doesn't pay, which by the way. Let me just talk to you as someone who has a background in cybersecurity. <laughs> this is called ransomware. This is actually a real problem for, for big, bigger businesses. And people will, what they do is they will take computers, they encrypt them, and then tell you, you have to pay them to get the code to unencrypt your own computer. And people pay it and then realize that criminals, people that break the law, aren't to be trusted. <laughs> Right. So there's people that actually pay. There's like there was a hospital that got everything encrypted and they were told, you know, you got to pay. I forget what it was. Several thousand, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, for the encrypt code. And they paid it. And the bad guy said, thank you and gave no code. (laughs) You know, why would you think criminals are going to act any other way than being criminals? Yeah. Yeah. So so, you know, maybe one day. It wouldn't really be fitting with Christianity, but but maybe one day what I should do is a podcast. And folks, if you want this, let me know. But maybe I should do a podcast on how to protect yourself online, things that people should be doing. I mean, the easiest way to protect yourself against ransomware, someone that gets into your computer and and encrypts it, and then you, you have no access to all your stuff, the easiest way... Wait, I know. I already know. Okay. Turn it off and turn it on again, right? Well, yes, that's true. <laughs> but th- there's something else you have to do when you turn it, when you turn it on. You have to turn it on, connect it to your external hard disk where you have a backup. Oh, it drives me things. nuts that yeah. people don't back up their data. You you want to have a, a backup. So that's all free charge. But actually, if, if folks, if you do want an, me to do an episode uh, on cybersecurity, how to protect yourself, there's a lot of different things uh, that you can do. Um, for many years, I did lots of work catching lots of bad guys, um, you know, using, using the technology that they try to abuse. But this is what happened with these guys. They, they hacked in, they downloaded information. Now they threatened to make it available. Here's the thing that so amazed me with the article you sent me, bud. It isn't that Kenneth Copeland got targeted, I mean, he's worth, uh, I think they said $760 million. Yeah, that, that's, yeah, that's three quarters of a billion is what his net worth is. That's not a preacher, folks. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's really the bad thing. <clears throat> but the note, the comment that the article, and this is a totally secular article, the hacker's latest alleged victim, Copeland, is, and this is what I hate, this is what is recognized. Copeland is, quote, one of the most famous evangelical preachers in America. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. He's not evangelical. Um, so so here, the, here was the thing that I thought was so interesting with the title, though. Because if I was going to title this, if I really want to get clickbait, if I want to get people to click on this, I'm going to label it, you know, televangelist Kenneth Copeland who says he can predict the future, didn't see Russian hackers, <laughs> right? Or, or televangelist Kenneth Copeland, who claimed that he put an end to COVID and can see the future, couldn't predict Russian hackers were 
going to hack him. I mean, like something like that. No, but here's what the title actually is. Tele-evangelist Kenneth Copeland, who mocked Biden victory with... um, I can't even say the word. (laughs) Maniacal fake laugh hit by Russian hackers. Their focus is that he mocked the Biden victory. Like, I mean, it's like, here's the irony for, for the media, the whole world right now revolves around Biden. This is what we had when it was Obama. It was like this love fest that everything is like, like they called him Obama, a Messiah. And, and what, this is totally off topic, but in what way could we ever claim that Barack Obama is a messiah. He was the messiah because he was going to bring an end to racism in America just by being elected. In fact, that's why he got a peace prize from no, you know, the Nobel Peace Prize, was just getting elected. That's what he had. Well, that's all he did. He just needed to steal an election. He got a peace prize because he was going to end racism. How's that working for you, Black Lives Matter? Was there an end to racism? I guess not. He actually did exactly what he said he would do in his book, is keep racism going because it kept him in power. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? So, yeah, and those aren't my words. Those are his words. He recognized that. So, But, but notice, you're right. The, the focus of this is Copeland mocking Biden, but it's also behind that, there is this subtle, you know, agenda that's coming out that's going to be hostile towards christianity that's exactly what this is doing yeah uh, yeah and it's because christians are are you know being seen as standing up for for trump and uh and and really what it is it's not i i would argue it's not that christians are standing up for trump as much as i think it is christians are standing up for truth because yeah. that's what we yeah. stand up for well, uh, truth doesn't exist in the postmodern world. It's all about feelings and experience. Ah, that's right. Come on, Andrew. All right. Well, let us get to our topic for today. Um, if you've watched or listened to my Apologetics live show from uh, a couple weeks ago, we had a young kid on, uh, Anthony Silvestro was debating him on evolution. Well, actually, I think they, the debate was on, on deep uh, on basically starlight issues and time, uh, basically the age of the universe. And at the end, we got into a 30-minute discussion on textual criticism. Now, why did we do that? This young man said he was Christian. Stop, I know. First John 2.19, he wasn't a Christian. He went out from among us to expose he was never of us. Yes, we all agree. He doesn't. He's deceived. So, he claims he, he was a Christian, but textual criticism convinced him that Christianity is wrong. And so this atheist became an Orthodox Jewish. I'm going, wait a minute. How do you, you go into Orthodox Judaism. <laughs> now he's not, he's just Jewish. He's not an Orthodox. Okay. But he's still atheist. So here's the thing, though. We wanted to co- cover this for this reason. There's some things with it when it comes to textual criticism that is important to understand and it's something that many people think it's too heady it's people don't deal with this i in fact i know many pastors that don't address this they've dealt with it in in college i actually had one pastor from from florida that called called up and we were talked to him on um I, i talked to him on friday and after the show and and he thanked me for doing that, because like, you know, I love that sort of stuff, but 
I haven't really dealt with it since I was in seminary. In seminary, you take a class on reliability of Scripture, and that's like the only time most pastors really deal with textual criticism. And yet, one of the biggest things that we see is guys like Bart Ehrman. If you don't know the name, good. (laughs) But Bart Ehrman is a scholar. He's not a believer. He is someone who studies the original languages and does work in the area of textual criticism. Now, Bart Ehrman writes at two different levels. He writes scholarly work, and Mm -hmm. he writes work for the masses. And when he writes for the masses... He waters things down. In fact, Bud, I'm going to be dealing with this Sunday when I'm preaching. I'm dealing with uh, Mark chapter 6. And in Mark chapter 6 is one of the things that Bart Ehrman says is proof that we cannot know what the Bible originally meant. And the proof is in, in Mark 6, verse 3, in the NASB says, Is this not the carpenter? Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah some some translations word it differently for verse 3. And in some translations, it is going to say, not that he's the carpenter, but the son. Is this not the son of the carpenter? Yeah. Now, can we know what the original said? No, we can't. Actually, there's because of the the manuscripts that we have, it's it's very difficult with this one to know the original. Does it change the meaning? Yes, it absolutely does. I mean, it's either Jesus is a carpenter or he's he's the son of a carpenter. However, if we think about this, bud, couldn't both think. be true? I was just thinking it could both be true. Exactly. And and that's what we have here is something that that it really may not change the meaning, but but what you see from guys like Bart Ehrman is they will turn to the passage like this and say, "See, I mean, if you're going to write a New York Times bestseller, you want to put your best argument forward. This was his argument. Yeah. I don't know a single doctrine based on Jesus being a carpenter. In, in fact, here's a little known fact. In the first edition, the paperback edition of Bart Ehrman's book, Misquoting Jesus, they, his book, when he wrote the hardcover, it flew off the shelves. They wanted it to, the publisher wanted more. They said, can you write a paperback edition and put an epilogue in there so people that got the hardcover will buy the paperback? So he did that, and he made a huge mistake, and the publishers didn't pick up on it. And this is why I'm still, if there's anyone that has a first edition copy of Bart Ehrman's Misquoting Jesus, I would love it. Uh, but in that first edition, which I was only able to see from the, my library copy that I got from the library. I had to actually return it. But what he, they ended up saying, the mistake he did was he actually admitted that when we look at all these textual variances, and we'll explain what a variant is in a, in a minute here, but when you look at all these ch- textual variances, these changes, not a single one of them affects any Christian doctrine. doctrine yeah. And they, they put that, because that's a fact, but when they're using this book to discredit Christianity, that one line was so devastating that they quickly came out with a second edition and pulled all the first editions because they, and what was the change? They had to remove that one line because that one line proves that the whole book is meaningless. It's like the book on, I'm trying to remember the name now. I I quote it in in my book, What Do We Believe? But uh, there's a book um, that was written by a Muslim 
uh, and it became a New York Times bestseller, again, dealing with the issue of textual criticism. And he does everything that the whole book was based on this belief in a, a document called Q, that the argument goes is that you had Q, Q was used to write Mark, and then Matthew and Luke used Mark and embellished a little bit more. So Mark, you know, by Q, Jesus isn't God at all. By Mark, he's a little bit God. By Matthew and and Luke, he's he's more, he's kind of like half God there. And then by John, John, you know, basically ignores Matthew, Mark, and Luke and just writes about how Jesus is God. That's the argument that they make. And this guy, his whole book is on on the evidence that we have from Q. Aslan, that's his yes, name. Yes, yes. And the interesting thing is that I point out in my book, and I actually put the quote in, in my book on, I have, if you, folks, if you don't know, I have a book called What Do We Believe? And in that, the second chapter, yeah, there, you're holding it up there. It's a nice looking book. That That's, is that one of the limited hardcovers? This is the that, paperback edition. Oh, that's the paperback. I need to get a few more, by the way. Yeah, and you have, anyway, you have, please continue. You have not just one, but two hardcovers. You I, are the I only do. one in the world with two hardcovers. That's, that is how, how. You know how special uh, you, know, you are. It's like it's like <laughs> a, the second blessing. I mean, <laughs> there were only twenty five made, so you you have a pretty good percentage there. Uh, but in my book, what do we believe? Uh, the second chapter deals with this whole issue. It's I wrote it where it's easy to understand. So if this whets your appetite, you want to get the book. What do we believe? And read more detail. But I quoted, I, I quoted him because in his introduction. He ends up admitting that there's no evidence of Q. There's no, we don't have a single copy. There's no reference to it anywhere, except in the last fifty years, hundred years, where this theory was developed. And so, well, notice that that I mean, and Q is is German for quell, which means source. Quellum. This is coming out of the you know higher criticism uh, halls of you know German liberal christianity it's not christianity but very liberal and yeah you do quote that all that he says although we no longer have any physical copies of this document meaning q we can infer its contents by compiling those verses that matthew and luke share in common but don't appear in mark uh yeah this almost sounds like the biden win we, 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 even though we don't have evidence of ballots, we, we, we can infer that the ones we interjected are the ones that sure. people would have voted if they were right. still alive. This right. is how they would have voted. Yeah. <laughs> hey, did you see uh, Jeffrey Epstein voted? It was good. I saw a picture of him with the I, I voted sticker, you know. <laughs> what scares me is that they had put, you know, uh, Epstein in lockdown for his own safety, and now they're putting the rest of the country in lockdown for our own safety. I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and that, suicide but. rate is up. There you go. Yeah, maybe that's yeah, what. Yeah. You know, look, Bill Gates has always said there's too many people on the earth. This is a way of getting us to kill ourselves off, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but what you end up seeing there in that quote is he makes it clear there's no historical evidence for this. They just infer it. You have to know going into when you're studying this area of the reliability of Scripture, you have to understand that the scholars do a lot of work in an area that's called make-believe. They make-believe there is a document called Q that all the Gospels are based upon, And then they use that to say, well, Jesus was never claimed to be God in the original Bible. This is a later embellishment. Q, that original document, doesn't teach this. This is the argument that they end up making. 
don't think that that notion is not out there. I can point you to someone in a Southern Baptist church in my own hometown that has in his pulpit had a man stand and preach that Jesus never claimed he was God. And it is from this kind of exposure, um, uh, unbelievable. This is out there. This is a very serious thing. Yeah. And, you know, anyone that makes that statement obviously has not read the Gospels. Let me say why. <clears throat> I'm working on a book on the deity of Christ. Yes, I've been working on it for a long time. The thing that you end up seeing with, with it is 48% of the Gospels, Jesus is putting his deity on display. Yes. He's constantly showing that he's God by being omniscient. By by controlling the weather, we we dealt with this in in the a previous episode, and so <clears throat> where we went through Mark and, and and showed how in just a few things Jesus showed that he had the authority that only God has over the natural world, the supernatural world, disease, death. He controls it. Okay, he's over that. So what we end up seeing, and if I could find a good D word for weather i could i could you know because it could be demons disease death i just you know (laughs) i'll let the wordsmith out there figure that out but but here's the thing we end up seeing as we look at this there's many people that believe that the bible's been edited it's been copied it's been changed this is something that comes up regularly when evangelizing. Now, let me tell you a little story, bud. It's, this, is, this was fun. I was at, uh, I think this was Montclair State University, and I was doing an, a speaking event, and during the day, I went to the college center and was just handing out tracts and evangelizing. A young man comes up to me, and he, d- he told me that we don't have a Bible. The Bible, the Catholic Church in the 1500s, collected all of the copies of the Bible and replaced them. And the Bible we have now is a Bible that the Catholic Church gave us in the 1500s. Now, Mm. I I still remember this because this was many years ago after I read Greg Kokel's book, Tactics, and he talks about Columbo. And I said, you know, I want to practice his Columbo tactic. I always ask questions. But playing dumb, that was, well, okay, it comes naturally for me. But (laughs) <laughs> the, the the thing, I wanted to play dumb with the guy. I wanted to just ask the questions like, oh, well, you're so smart. Let me learn from you. So I started asking him these questions. And I said, I said, all right, let me ask you a question. How did they do this? He goes, oh, well, what they did was they, they got all the copies. I said, all of them? Yeah, every, every copy. I said, okay. And, and they, they just replaced them. Wouldn't people know? And they, and he's like, oh no, what they did was they had everyone hand in their Bibles and they, they, people thought they were being returned. Uh-huh. And I'm going, but what about like their notes? Like, I mean, a lot of Christians take notes in their Bibles. Wouldn't they notice the notes are missing? <laughs> right? You know, just having fun with questions. And I said, let me do a thought experiment with you. I'm trying to understand what you're saying. I mean, you, you seem like you really understand this. I said, um, here's a, the school paper. Do you, do you know when the school paper came, comes out? He goes, well, I happen to be the photographer on the paper. It came out this morning at 11 o'clock. I said, okay, it's now like 132-ish. I said, uh, how many papers come out? And I forget the number now, but it, it was like a, a thousand, 1,500, something like that. I said, okay. I said, where are they now? I said, I'm gonna, I want to do the same thing that you say the Catholic Church did in the 1500s. I want to do it with the school paper. So where are the papers now? He goes, well, right there in that stack. I said, where else? He's like, well, around the, the center. I said, okay, where else? He's like, students' dorms? I said, where else? He's like, uh, students' cars? Okay, where else? 
students work? I'm like, okay, where else? I kept going because there was one I wanted to get to. The garbage. He admitted, yes, they're in the garbage. I said, great, thank you. So if I wanted to replace them all without anybody knowing it, where would I have to go? And he goes, well, you'd, you'd have to go to their you know, to the, to the stack right there. You need to go to the, the rooms. You need to go to the, in the center here. You have to go to the trash. And I said, okay, so I, I got to get into students' rooms without their knowledge. And he's like, well, yeah, you'd have to do that. And like, so, so I, and I can do that and replace it. And, and no one would realize that I've done that. Right. And he goes, well, you wouldn't be able to get into people's rooms. Like how, you know, I'm like, well, yeah, but you said that this is what the Catholic church did is <laughs> replaceable. And he goes, he's looking at this. And I said, now, now, here's the thing I'm confused with, because we have a book written in many different languages, spread in many different countries when we look at the Bible. It's all over the world, translated. We have all these copies, and we have copies that we find that are within the first 300 years, some that were found in the garbage, some that what they did was because paper was so expensive, they would use it for the Bible, but then someone would take that paper, scrape off the the ink and reuse that parchment for something else. And we now have those copies where with with the technology, the infrared, we can actually read the text underneath what was scraped off and we can see the scriptures and we can see that it's the same as today. And and that's the trash. We find this in trash. And he just looks at me and goes, you know, this isn't making much sense to me. Of which I said, I agree. It wasn't making sense to me either. <laughs> well, you know, and this is the problem. You, you, you have a great argument. That would really work, but it wouldn't really work. You've got to apply some reason to it, some logic to it. See, and, and that's what a lot of people aren't doing in our culture. They're just, they, they, they suffer from an ignorant arrogance where they, they're so arrogant in their ignorance that they are unaware that they're ignorant. Just the yeah. fact that they think they're right is the proof that they're right. And he thought he had a great argument. He just never thought through it. He was ignorant yeah. of the details. And so what we want to do in this episode is give you these details, help you to understand this. Now that you understand the importance of it, here's some simple things. When it comes to Scripture, the Old Testament versus New Testament was handled differently when they made copies. The Old Testament, the Jewish leaders felt that they were handling God's Word, and therefore they were very, very meticulous in how they made copies. And for that reason, we don't have a lot of variances, which, and a variance is basically just a change. It could be a spelling error. It could be you flip the order of the words. It could be anything that's a change from one manuscript to another. That's it. So you don't have a lot of those changes in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, the message of the gospel was so important that people wanted to get that out everywhere. And for that reason, they were making copies very quickly. Where the Old Testament was painstakingly slow, the New Testament, they were trying to make copies as quick as they could and get them off. Well, the, as you know, when you do something quickly, you're prone to make mistakes. Not Bud, but, you know, me. So <laughs> I'm going to let my wife hear that. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the thing that you end up seeing with that is that they're in a rush to get this out. And because that, they're, they are making mistakes, copying errors. And I want to go through a couple of those, Bud, so people understand what type of things. And, and these are things, if you ever, Bud, I'm sure you never had to do this, but I had to 
for some reason, when I was in school, my teachers liked to give me these assignments where I had to copy something out of a book that's like 200 words. I used to have a, a teacher that always gave me 200 word essays. For some reason, she always seemed to think that I was misbehaving in class and that was her way of, of giving punishment. Hmm. I don't, I can't imagine why that would be. Well, go ahead. I'm thinking on that. Yeah. <laughs> so here's the thing that I find interesting. When I would do that, there was times where I would see a word, the, and on the next line, the word, the, and sometimes, not on purpose, I would skip over that entire line. Sometimes I repeated the line because, well, I wasn't actually looking at the words. I was just trying to make a copy. (laughs) I didn't care what it said. That sometimes happened. Um, And those are some things we, we would have. Sometimes you have people that'll skip words or add words in. Sometimes you have someone that's doing it from memory. They're in a rush to do it. And they're remembering something they read in Mark, and they're putting that into Matthew because they just remembered it a certain way. Now, sometimes you see people that are making a copy, and because this is God's Word, they see it written in the copy that they're making a copy from, and they don't know that someone added a word in or missed a word. Sometimes they think, oh, you know what? I think the person did miss a word here and they would write something in. And that could be a mistake. Sometimes what you have is where people, because someone would skip a word, they'd, they'd you know, draw a line and then fill in. Sometimes maybe you've done this where you, you have a document, you, you draw a line what you should have put in there. So when you go to edit it, you can put that in. It, sometimes they do that. Well, sometimes that's just someone's notes, but Guy copying it isn't sure, and this might be God's word, so he would take these side notes and put it. We actually have manuscripts where we see comments that are in the side notes that are brought into the text. These are the things that people would do. One of the interesting things in this area is that some of the best copies are from people that we think didn't even know Greek. And this might make sense, because if they don't know Greek, they're not going to read ahead. They're going to be copying these letters. They don't know the meaning of the letters. They just copy them. They're actually more accurate, because they're not reading anything in. One of the things that sometimes people would do is, as they're making a copy, they see something that's just, it's a hard reading, and they go, this, this isn't making sense. Let me, let me soften it. Let me use a different word. Or, as Bud, you're going to give an example where they may put in some explanation, and yet the explanation is then thought to be the scripture, and now we just don't know. So, these are what we call variances and how they, they come about. It's a, it's a natural process. It, it, it happens when you're making a copy. I mean, I would challenge you, try this. Take the Bible, the New Testament, and make an entire copy by hand, and you're going to see that you're going to make a lot of different mistakes, some of these same ones that we mentioned. And if you're trying to do this, sometimes you may, if you're trying to be helpful to people, because you're writing a translation or a copy of the Bible for someone you know, you know that they don't understand big words or they might be confusing, you might choose word, you might change the word to be more explanatory to somebody. That might be, or to soften something because it seems too hard to understand. These are, these are the things that happen. Now, what we end up doing in textual criticism is try to get back to those original words. That's the goal. So, Bud, you have an example that we are talking about from John chapter 5. Uh, yes, let me flip over there. So, let's, let's look at John chapter 5, and for folks to understand why you're look, pulling that up, is, and, and I, for folks, that's actually a page turning, if you hear that. 
Yeah. yeah it's, I don't, you can't maybe see it. But, yeah. Uh, oh, I can see it. But, um, but the, so, the, this is the healing of, at the pool of Bethesda. Yeah. The, the paralytic man. Yeah. Um, and, and verses three and four have a textual variant. Now, depending on your translation, it may note that you may have a little note that says it, it may be absent. It may be absent altogether. Yes. You may not have yeah. John five, four. So now so in the new American it? standard, it's in brackets with a comment that says early manuscripts do not contain the remainder of verse three nor verse four. So sometimes you're going to have that, that footnote. So, but why don't you read this and let's deal with this one, because this is helpful for folks to see how someone may put in an explanation. Okay. I'm going to start at verse two so that we get a little bit of the context uh, and read through verse four in the NASB because it is included in the NASB, just it is bracketed. Uh, it says, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is, in, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. Verse three, in these lay a multitude of those who were sick blind, lame, and withered. And here's the bracket uh, starts at the end of uh, verse 3. The blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at, at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now, but why would this, so if you look in something like the ESV, the ESV is not going to have this at all. Yeah, okay. I think the ESV, it's not in there. The NI, I think the NIV excludes it. The NASB picks it up and, and highlights it, as it does a number of other texts that you, you'll mention later. Um, when I was looking at this particular text, what was curious with regards to the textual criticism is that we have so many copies of manuscripts. Well, these manuscripts, which are copies of the autographs, uh, which is what you're trying to get back to. We don't have those, but we want to know what the autograph said. So and the autograph is the original, that original writing. Yeah, so what John would have, with his hand, written on parchment. Um, but the manuscripts that we have, this verse is included primarily in those that we see from the Byzantine, the Eastern Church essentially, geographically Eastern. When you get into more of the Western manuscripts, which happen to be older, this verse is not included in there. So as you go back in time based on the age of the manuscripts and also the geography of the manuscripts, you can determine what was in and what was not. Because would it seem likely that, say, a scribe in Rome would have found it necessary to delete that verse because he found it uh, heretical or undoctrinal, or would it have made sense that he would have deleted that, or would it maybe have made more sense for a guy, say, in Turkey, who is a scribe copying whatever source document he had, he decided, you know what, I need to explain why these people are laying by this pool. Here's why, and he inserts this. Now, maybe like you say, he inserts it as his own note, not intending for it to actually be compiled into the canon of Scripture of the Gospel of John. But as his copy gets transmitted to someone else, multiple more copies are made, and that gets included. So the whole goal of textual criticism is to get back to what does that original author actually say, and we're more than able to do that. Now, in our English, we have it in brackets in the New American Standard, and the 
we have this punctuation that tells us things, right? We have commas that tell us to pause. We have something in brackets that, that tell us this was not in the original. We, we have things in parentheses. All these things, punctuation has meaning. They didn't have punctuation back then. So when they were writing this without punctuation, could they have written it on the side and put it in, or could they have written it in as explanation to explain to people the, 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 the folklore with this pool so that people understand it? That, that's, that is what makes sense, is that someone was trying to explain it and put that in. This is what we end up doing. Now, there's some things I want you to notice what Bud mentioned. Because when it comes to textual criticism, there's, there's three things you want to focus in on. You want to focus in on the number of manuscripts, the age of the manuscripts, and the location of the manuscripts. Those three things. And if you can remember those three, you can understand textual criticism. And by the time we're done with this episode, I'm going to convince you that you can trust the Bible you have in your hand, even in, in, its, in the English. Because remember, that's not the original either. Anytime you're dealing with a translation, you're dealing with a translation that is going to be someone's interpretation or choosing of a word they think best fits what that other language was. Okay, unless, of course, you believe, wrongly, that God inspired the King James Version in 1611. And if, and if you do believe that, then please stop using your 1700 edition of the authorized standard and use the 1611, which included the Apocrypha in it. Because that would be what God inspired. And yet there's been many additions to the King James, and the King James that everyone that uses a King James Bible today is actually called the Authorized Version. It is not a 1611 King James. It's gone through many revisions. So if you believe the 1611 is inspired, then please repent for the, all the negative things you may have said about the Catholic Church with the Bible, because... If you think God inspired it, the Apocrypha was in there. Okay, we so had... Wait, Jesus didn't use thee and thou and thou. No, That's, no. It is... It, I mean, oh, that wow. English is it's more precise. Everything. That English is more precise. Uh, I mean, look, in, in another 50 years, people are going to go, remember when people used to use he and she instead of they? Oh. <laughs> so, yeah. so language changes, unfortunately, not in a good way. Um, it devolves. So what we end up seeing is that... When you have people that are doing translation, it is going to be something that does affect, gets affected by interpretation. One of the reasons I, I like the New English translation, the Net Bible, is it, it was done by someone that with backgrounds in textual criticism, they're, they're arguing over word choices in English based on whether the, on the textual variances and things like that. So it's a very, that's very helpful in this area, that Bible translation. Now, we're going to convince you you can trust your, your Bible. But let's look at these three areas. Okay, let's first look at the issue of geography. Why that could be important. Now, you heard Bud just explain that East versus West, the Eastern folks might need explanation of Western folklore, and so it could be added in. That makes sense. But if I have, if I take a, a, I take a letter... Bud, and I, I'm going to write this letter. I'm going to make 10 copies of the letter. I'm going to give it to 10 friends so that they can go all over the world and, and share this story. And they're going to make copies. But the letter that I give to you and you go to France has one word that when I was making the copy, I dropped the word. Instead of saying, Lord Jesus Christ, I just said, Lord Jesus. And 
you start making copies everywhere in France that with what you have, your copy says Lord Jesus, but in Spain, in Italy, in the UK, in the US, in India, in China, it all says Lord Jesus Christ. We would look at that and say, okay, all of these copies, we, we end up calling that a manuscript family when we see these, these same variances occur. When we have a, a family that is by its location and we go, okay, it's all in France has this where it's dropped the one word, but we look everywhere else, it hasn't. We would look at that and go, okay, we can assume that someone in France that started making those copies the word was dropped. Now, they don't know whether I dropped that word in making my copy, or was it the guy who wrote the first copy in France, and he kept that going? We we can never know, but what we can know is the word should be there, Lord Jesus Christ, because everywhere else, all the other copies have it. So, that's where location comes into play. One of the other things that comes into play that Bud, if you heard Bud mention, was the age. In the Western manuscripts, they're older than the Eastern. Why does that play into things? Well, the closer you have a document that goes to the original writing, the less time there is for copying errors. This is simple to to think about. If I'm taking copies and I'm making a copy and I make another copy and another copy and I give it and some people get some of these copies and they start making copies from the copies and then someone else makes a copy from the copy. Well, each time it's copied, there is a chance of someone making a mistake, of creating a variant. So the closer you get, the less the probability that there is that as many variances. So you're going to question that less than the later one. So if you, so we're going to put a little bit more weight on that earlier manuscript, the one that's dated earlier, because there's less chance of it, the copy from the copy from the copy. Okay. Now, when we talk about this, there comes into play the telephone game. I'm sure you played this, bud, when you were a kid, where you have one person in a line. He gives a, he'll, he'll turn and say a very long sentence and because they, you want to make it longer so people will accidentally forget things. Uh, then you have the people like me who would purposely mix things up. I, because it's always fun to see. The whole reason of the telephone game is so that you have the thing that was said at the beginning, you have the thing that's said at the end, and they don't match at all. Yeah. And and so you always have the characters like me who purposely do that, mostly because it was, you know, one paragraph and I didn't feel like saying that much. So I just dropped parts I didn't feel like saying, right? Or didn't remember or whatever. Now, people think that the way we got the Bible is the same way. One person copies it to another person, to another person, to another person. However, that only works in audible type of messages. Yeah, The telephone game doesn't work when it's a written message because we have the other manuscript to compare to. Yeah, you and, actually have a source document from which you are working. Even though you may still inadvertently make mistakes, you've got a source. Mm-hmm. And sometimes what people would do is go back back to the source and compare. You can't do that in the telephone game. And and that's what some people would do. They'd realize, oh, oh, I just skipped a whole line. Oops, let me draw a line, put on the margins and write in, you know, the sentence I skipped. We actually see that in manuscripts. Yeah. So so we can we can see it. Someone must have realized, oh, I forgot this whole sentence. Let me put that in. So this is the thing that you end up having. It's not the telephone game. 
it, it is because you have a source document you can go back to and verify and check. And now we have all these source documents, all these manuscripts that have been copies of copies of copies. We don't have the original that we know of, but the thing is, is we're, we look at this, so we look at the where it's located, we look at the age. The other thing we want to look at is the number of manuscripts. Why is that so important? When you look at the Greek, we have about now, about eight to 9,000 manuscripts that are cataloged. And I'm being precise with this because we actually have probably tens of thousands probably 10, 12,000 manuscripts, but they haven't been cataloged yet. There, we have documents that we don't know if there are scripture yet. We have, like I said, you have documents where they, they, they ripped off the, the ink and wrote something else on it, and you have to put it under the machines to be able to see the next layer down through the infrared. And, and looking at it that way, that takes time. So we probably have a lot more manuscripts that are available. They just haven't been cataloged yet. And that takes time and, and energy and money. And so that is a process that Dan Wallace is working on. And you can go check out the work he does. The thing that you end up having there is we have about 8,000 Greek manuscripts now. And when we look at those, we can see the variances we have. Now, here's the interesting thing, bud, is as we get more manuscripts, we're not getting more variances, Okay, so the variances are kind of staying steady, and the manuscripts are increasing, which means we've kind of leveled out on all the variances that there are. It's it's almost like the coronavirus, right? There's lots of people getting positive test cases, but the death rate seems to be staying the same. So, you know, it's kind of, there's a huge spike in the cases, but there's not a spike at all in the deaths. It's kind of interesting, you know, it's... Actually, the spike in deaths was from the beginning. So almost as if we figured out now how to, you know, deal with the virus and what the, you know, the cure is for the majority of people, for 99.98% of the people, we know how to handle it. Like, you know, we do with a cold or other things. But I I, I guess I... You're digressing. uh, Just maybe, just maybe. So... (laughs) But it is a good analogy there, right? So, so that's the thing. As we're getting more manuscripts, we're not seeing an increase of the variances. That becomes helpful because that says, okay, we, we have enough of these to see a couple things. One, it tells us if you go back to that geographical argument I made, the more manuscripts we have, the more we can put that into that evaluation. The, the age, the more manuscripts we have and where we find them, we help, it helps to date them. That helps us to tell us which ones are the earlier ones. Just the fact that we have so many copies, we can start to see where these variances occur. And well, I, only, you know, it's not only, I just wanted to insert this, it's not only the fact that we have a multitude, these thousands of Greek documents, but you've got over 10,000 Latin documents that are scripture. Mm-hmm. You've got over I think over, I wrote down 9,300 in other languages, you know. So those also feed into our ability to be able to determine what is legitimate, what may not be legitimate, and and have come away from it with a high level of certainty that what we have right now on our desks is the Word of God. Well, we could, if we, we have about 70,000 translations of the Bible, okay, in manuscript form. The handwritten manuscripts. So go back to the second century. Yeah, you know, and we have hundreds of copies of Greek that go within the first three hundred years. 
Now, right. now, when I say a manuscript, for folks to understand, I'm not saying it's a whole copy of the New Testament. This could be just a small section. It could be, you know, one pericope, you know, one one paragraph or something. Uh, we have some P52, which is the size of a credit card. That's all we got. But it is one of the oldest that we have. It's it's a, it's within, I think, about 30 years of its writing. Yeah. Uh, it's a copy of John's writing, which would have been, he wrote John. it in the 90s. And, you know, this is was found in a mummy's tomb used as garbage by about 125. Yeah. Right. So you, you, we have some copies of Mark, that are now dated to 85 AD. So they, we end up by having so many copies, though, we start to see, we can get a picture of the variances. And and folks, if in my book, What Do We Believe? I lay out the numbers here. It's hard to do numbers in, in audio. But let me work through some of these. 75% of all of these variances we're talking about are spelling errors. Okay? That's all, that's all they are. They're spelling errors. Spelling errors are things you can easily get back to. If I have a spelling error, I'm I'm able to figure out uh, what what was this? What? Well, let me see. He misspelled something. Ah, okay. I can correct that. I can get back to what it originally said, and so that becomes not viable. Okay, not viable meaning the the idea of being a viable is can we get back to the original? Can we get yeah. back to what it originally said? If the answer is yes okay, then we're, we're good to go. And maybe one of the best examples with regards to, to the spelling, you know, is Christ using um, the hyperbole that a camel going through the eye of a needle. Well, the word camel, I think, is one letter off from the word cord, C-O-R-D, which could be a piece of thread. Well, a piece of thread is intended to go through the eye of a needle. So the context and the fact that it's hyperbole, not to mention the older texts that would validate the word actually as camel and not cord, that can make a difference in the in the text. But we've got the ability to, to discern that through the uh, through the work that these scholars are doing and the multitude of manuscripts that give us access to. Now, spelling errors are in a category of their own, though. Because Then that's yeah, the majority sure. of them, because they're easy to, to fix. But 19% of these variances are going to be viable, but not meaningful. What does that mean? Viable means we can't get back to the original. We're, we're not sure. But it doesn't change the meaning in, a, in any way. So a lot of these are Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Lord Christ, Christ Jesus. Yeah. We don't, we, it's, it is impossible for us with all the variances we have to, to figure out what the original said. But those several readings that I just gave you don't change the meaning at all. You know exactly who that's speaking of. How, whether it's Lord Jesus Christ, yeah. Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord Christ, you understand who it's speaking of. The, the meaning hasn't changed at all. And therefore, we're not concerned with it. That's 19%. 5% are meaningful but not viable. In other words, what that means is 5%, the meaning changes, but we can get back to the original. And therefore, yeah, the meaning changed, but we, we realize what it should have been, and therefore, we just go back to that. That's 5%. Mm-hmm. So 1%, and by the way, the 1% is a, a number that was used back really in the 80s. It's an old number. Back when they were only 400,000 uh, 400, textual 
readings. And what I mean by reading is, as I gave you, Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, those are three separate readings, okay? And that's how you have 400,000 variances. It's now up to about 500,000. Now, just keep in mind, when you talk about this, we're only talking about 65,000 words in the Greek New Testament. So obviously, it's, it's not that every word in the Greek New Testament has a variant reading. It's that you have some things where there's lots of different ways of reading it, like Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. You, know, you can have five, six, seven variant readings. And there's many words that are affected sometimes by those variant readings. So when we say 1% are meaningful and viable, 1%, we can't get back to the original, and it changes the meaning, such as, was Jesus a carpenter or the son of a carpenter? It changes the meaning. We don't know what the original said. That's where we're talking in the 1%. But I remember when taking a class with uh, Professor Dan Wallace, who's an expert in this field, one of, the, one of the, the best, I asked him about this, and I said, okay, we, we know that the numbers of variances increased by 100,000. What is the proper number for the variant that are in this category of viable and meaningful, because this is the most important area. Is it still 1%? He said, actually, we use the 1% as a conservative number, but the real number is one-fifth of 1%. So that is the, the, the number of, of that we would be using. So, But let's go with the, the 1%, just as an example. When we look at the 1%, the 1%, if we have 65,000 words, right? This is how many we have in, in, of New Testament words, roughly, okay? 6,500 uh, 6, words. And you are going to have 1% of that. How many words do you have? 6,500. Now, think about this. If you have 6,500 words, and really your number is not 1%, but it's one-fifth of 1%, okay? You're talking 13 words. 13 words is how we we could look at that compared to 65,000 words. And remember what Bart Ehrman said, not a single one of these affect Christian doctrine. So as we go to these texts, as we, we looked at just a couple today in Mark 6, in John 5, as you look at these, you see that we can figure out what the scripture originally said or what the meaning is. Or it just doesn't matter. Like in the case of Mark 6, it could be both. He could, Jesus could be a carpenter and the son of a carpenter. Both could actually be true. So when we look at this, we have to realize that the Bible would be 99.98% accurate. I'll put that number up to CNN any day of the week. And yet people trust that. In, in fact, that's that's even the, you know, the uh, cure ratio of, of COVID, right? <laughs> just happens to be. Again. <laughs> so the reality is, is you can trust the Bible that you have because of the fact that be all these manuscripts that we have, we evaluate all this and we know where these variance readings are. And we can look at this and realize that they do not affect any Christian doctrine. And you say, well, wait a minute, what do you do with the ending of Mark? What do I mean by that? If you know Mark chapter 16, when we look at different manuscripts, there's four different endings to Mark. It seems that Mark actually ended pretty abruptly, and then we have some that added a little bit, a little bit more, and a little bit more. So you have four different endings in the Gospel of Mark. 
Now, the argument that many have is that it seems if you if you look at at Mark, it seems like he just ended it abruptly. Now, um, if you look, if you have a New American Standard, you're again, you, you'll see, well, even uh, New King James and others, they'll bracket it or put a note. So in in the um, New American Standard, it's going to say that ver- uh, later manuscripts add verses 9 to 20. Yeah. So how does it end? So, so if this is the actual ending, verses 7 and 8 say this, but go and tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. The end. They're afraid. That, like, that's how it ends. So some people add, now after he had risen, you know, early in the first day, so they add a little bit more. And, and so, so does this affect any doctrine? Well, the only doctrine this actually affects is snake handling. Because m- much of, the, of what we see elsewhere is, is, we see this in other scriptures. It's actually snake handling and drinking poison. Uh, you can see that the snake handling in Book of Acts where you know, a, a viper had, had bit Paul oh, and he didn't yeah. die. But that wasn't a promise to everyone for that. There was no... So that's the only two things you end up seeing. Now, this does become a, a major issue for our charismatic friends, however, because this is the only place that they have in verse 17 and 18 where Jesus, you know, in this account, if you have a red letter, it's in red. Uh, These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents, they will drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them, they will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. This is the only place that you see the idea that speaking in tongues uh, and healing are to be done for everyone. And so, this is the verse, and that's the, to have the only verse that you can have that says it's for everyone, and it's in a variant is not strong evidence. In fact, you know, that's where you get the people that are playing with snakes and pretending to drink poison, um, because I don't think they're actually drinking poison. So, but you do have snake handlers, you do have people like that, and I I remember watching a, a show where they had this guy, and he he was doing a whole thing about how he he was snake handler. His father died. His father was a supposed pastor that died of a snake bite. He almost died of a snake bite. Um, so these guys who do this, and yet they do get harmed by the snakes. Yeah. So th- this is where you can end up having a problem with some of these because it wasn't, I would argue, not actually in the scripture. It was added in. Yeah. Does it affect any doctrine? No, it doesn't. The only other thing you maybe affect is uh, some of the earlier manuscripts will mention that the the number of what people think is the beast, the number of man is 666. Well, some manuscripts say 616. But we have an early church father, Anarius, for 400 AD, I think he is, and he deals with this early on. So we're, we're within you know, 300 years of its original writing. And he's saying that based on the textual evidence he has at his time, the 666 is a better number. So he he's closer to that and lays out a case of why he makes that. It was a good case. And that's why we have the number 666 and not 616. So that might affect a lot of left behind books or something. <laughs> 
but I don't think it affects any other doctrine. So, yeah. so this is Esch- the thing. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say eschatology is still intact, whichever way you go. Mm-hmm. And so the thing that we want to encourage you folks with is when we look at this area of textual criticism, you can trust your scriptures. The scriptures you hold in your hand, were there copies? Were there changes? Did people make mistakes in making the copies? Yes. Does it mean you can't trust the Bible that you have in your hand? No. Why? For a very simple reason. Because we look at all the manuscripts. We look at the type of changes or variances that we have. We look at where they occur, when they occurred, and we start to get a picture of what the Bible originally said and where we can't get back to that. There's Much of it has no meaningful changes. And in the small areas where we can't get back and it's meaningful, it doesn't affect a single doctrine. There's no Christian, major Christian doctrine that's affected by any of these variances. Mm. And that's the thing you need to know. Now, when you sit down with someone and they tell you the Bible can't be trusted and you walk them through this, this is going to be the first time they're hearing it because most of them have not actually done any work in the area. Okay? They don't do this type of research and study. They just read what others have said about it. And that's the issue. Okay? This is not very hard. I mean, I hope that you've seen this is pretty simple. It's easy to explain, easy to understand. And we need to start educating other believers with this so that when people challenge us, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions, the Bible's been edited, the Bible's been written by men, but the Bible is trustworthy. In fact, it is the most trustworthy document. We have enough copies, enough manuscripts, and translations of the Bible that if we stacked them all in paper, we could start here on earth and hit the moon. That's how many papers we have. That's a huge amount of evidence. No one questions the accounts of Julius Caesar. Yet the closest document we have with Julius Caesar is 1,500 years from the event. And we only have a handful. In fact, Bud, maybe you remember there was a book that came out many years ago called Da Vinci Code, all based on this idea that that Jesus actually married Mary Magdalene. He didn't die on the cross. He, he actually, someone else died on the cross. He snuck away and he went off, married Mary Magdalene, eventually finds his way into what's now France and has offspring. And those offspring, believe it or not, those offspring happen to be all the emperors of France. Yeah, that, that's, so they, they were all, you know, of the line of Jesus. And all of this was based on a gospel known as the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Do you know how many copies we have of the Gospel of Mary Magdalene? One. One copy. In fact, it, it's a French copy. It's not even in Greek. So we have one copy in French, and the nice thing is because it had page numbers and all, we know that we're missing more of that than we have. <laughs> okay? So that whole belief system that so many buy into that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene is based on one document written in French, which right there, the French language didn't exist for like a thousand years. So it's, it's over a thousand years from the, it's actually, I think about 12 to 1500 years from the supposed events with one copy that's not even complete. You know, scripture says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And we could supplement that by saying, the fool never gets his theology from novels. Yes. <laughs> yeah, this is true. Hence, 
don't base your eschatology on left behind series. <laughs> oh, so I, I hope this encourages you when people challenge you with the idea that <clears throat> you can't trust your Bible, that you just you just don't know if it's really true. Well, as I said earlier, Christians stand for truth. That's why we're not afraid to do what the Muslims are afraid to do. See, the Muslims argue that they have one translate or one Quran in Arabic, and that there are no variances. And then there's people who show all these different variances in all the different areas where they're in the Arabic, and the Muslims go nuts over it. Why? Because yeah. they don't. They believe that God preserved His Word letter by letter from its original. That's impossible because the Quran was written was written down about 18 years after Muhammad died. So it was remembered audibly, and then they went to in a battle, and many of these guys, that the warriors that knew it supposedly audibly, died. And so they said, we better write this down. So one of their, their uh, imams, their, their caliph, Uthman, he ends up saying, well, let's, let's get this written down. So they all write it down, but there's a problem. They had a different recordings, they had different accounts. And Uthman put out an edict to, to burn the abhorrent texts after they, they wrote it down and compared. How do you know he burned the right ones? You don't. The fact that they all had different word for word, they memorized it word for word, and, and we're supposed to trust that. And yet when they wrote it down, there were variances. There were changes. There were di- well, they wouldn't actually be variances. There would be differences. No, there would be differences. You know, I- interestingly, um, you're looking truly at their scripture which is a result of the telephone game because they also have a doctrine of abrogation. So whatever you read in the Quran that may be contradictory to something earlier in the book, you go with what's written latest. So this this doctrine of abrogation is how you accommodate, supposedly, these differences that are glaring in some places, if you've ever done any study on that. Um, that's not an inspired scripture. You can take the Holy Scripture of Christianity, the Bible, and the integrity is inherent throughout it, not only doctrinally, but also the verbal plenary inspiration, which we hold to. Uh, major difference, major difference. Yeah, and and so we can trust the Bible that we have in our hands. That's that's really what we want you to know, but we want you to know how to talk about this, how to, how to be educated on this. If you want more information, just go to strivingforturning.org, go to the store and pick up a copy of What Do We Believe? WhatDoWeBelieve.com, which I think would be the other place. Uh, and actually, I think it's WhatDoWeBelieveBook.com, I think is the other site. But, but just go to strivingforturning.org, search for the book What Do We Believe? It will be out in Amazon soon. We are putting it to, out in Kindle version. I just have to work on that. Um, we have everything together. It's just now some stuff I have to to do for final edits. So look, you'll be hearing about that soon. So I hope this has been helpful for you. And uh, this is something hopefully that you can now use when you go out on the streets and evangelize and, and defend the faith. And you know what, bud? What's that? That's a wrap. This podcast is part of the Striving for Eternity ministry. For more content or to request a speaker or seminar to your church, go to strivingforeternity.org. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. 
Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.